Welcome to the Crowbar Massage Podcast. My name is Eric Blauer, and I'm going to be sharing with you some thoughts that I have on the issue of slavery, racism, and the current conversations and debates and drama and chaos that's part of our culture right now. I just finished a series of messages on the book of Exodus and the Hebrew people's deliverance from slavery. And there were a number of verses in that whole conversation that I had to just give a limited amount of time to, and I wanted to devote more energy and more thought to the subject. So I've chosen to do this podcast, as well as a previous one on MLK Junior Day. And hopefully these thoughts and conversations will further expand the depth of truth that's found in the scripture around the subject that it'll provoke our hearts to love God more and love one another more and help equip us to be better advocates for justice and mercy and truth in our culture. So thanks for listening. I hope you stick through it all because there's a lot of content in today's podcast. God bless. I hope this is meaningful to you. Thanks for listening. Racism is worse than idolatry. Racism is Satanism, unmitigated evil. Racial or religious bigotry must be recognized for what it is, Satanism and blasphemy. What is an idol? Any God who is mine but not yours. Any God concerned with me but not with you is an idol. Those are the words of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, and they were given in a speech that he gave at the Religion and Race Conference on January 14, 1963. This was in Chicago, Illinois, and this is where he, uh, the rabbi, met Martin Luther King Jr., and they became friends. This essay, which I'll link to in the show notes or in the, in the comments, has a, a lot of very great content that really speaks to uh, our day, as much as it did in 1963, here we are in January of 2023, and we're still wrestling with these uh, very real-world problems in our own country. It's really worth reading uh, for yourself. I have a few quotes out of it that I wanted to open this podcast with that I think really speaks to not only where I've been in the book of Exodus and some of the things that I've uh, been trying to communicate, but it sets the stage uh, for some of these other comments as well. He says in in this religion and race speech, uh, he begins by saying this, at the first conference on religion and race, the main participants were Pharaoh and Moses. Moses' words were, quote, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me. And Pharaoh retorted, Who is the Lord that I should heed his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. He continues, he says, Let us not dodge 
any issues. Let us yield no inch to bigotry. Let us not make no compromise with callousness. In the words of William Lloyd Garrison, quote, I will be as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. On this subject, slavery, I do not wish to think, to speak, or to write with moderation. I am in an earnest. I will not equivocate. I will not excuse. I will not retreat a single inch, and I will be heard, end quote. To th- he, he continues in his essay, to think of man in terms of white, black, or yellow is more than an error. It is an eye disease, a cancer of the soul. He quotes Ecclesiastes 4.1 and Isaiah 1.17, which are two verses that I think really set um, our hearts and minds aright in this conversation. Ecclesiastes says, Again, I saw all the oppressors that are, all the oppressions, sorry, that are practiced under the sun, and behold the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And Isaiah 117 says, Seek justice, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, and plead for the widow. In this essay, he has a couple one-liners, a couple uh, short sentences that I want to close this portion with that really challenged me as I as I have read through some of his writings. He says, an honest estimation of the moral state of our society, and I think we could agree history, will disclose some are guilty, but are but all are responsible. Some are guilty, but all are responsible. It is for us to understand, he continues, that religion is not sentimentality. That God is not a patron. Religion is a demand. God is a challenge, speaking to us in the language of human situations. His voice is in the dimension of history. The universe is done. The greater masterpiece still undone, still in the process of being created, is history. He closes with this, or I'm closing with this line from his speech. We are all pharaohs or slaves of pharaohs. It is sad to be a slave of pharaoh. It is horrible to be a pharaoh. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25 say, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. It's verses like this that I found it difficult to just read right over and and move on in, in my endeavor to give us kind of a bigger picture of God's saving work in humanity, kind of the point of the sermon series I'm, I'm in right now. And as I expressed in the previous podcast and in my sermons, there is a responsibility for us to stop at these words and these, these paragraphs and these parts of the story and understand that there's a profound amount of weight and history behind them. And not only that, in the, in the overarching story of God's work 
in humanity and in time and history is this narrative of slavery that touches the the evils of injustice as as we are going to see some today but they also speak to the evil of sin and the human condition and the problem humanity has with sin and all of its roots and fruits the slavery to sin is at the heart of the cross of Christ the redemption of Jesus and and salvation and all of its mm, all the things that are born out of sin that are part of the ills of suffering and and the horrors of humanity it's all connected up into this this big umbrella of slavery so as we're looking kind of at the lower story of humanity's experience with with in in this case slavery and racism and injustice that lower story which has highs and lows and and terrible uh, storylines and narratives connected to it. There's an upper story also of God's work to bring about redemption and restoration and healing to the cosmos and in um, his final you know restoration um, of all things in Christ and all that is is tied to the fall of man and sin and its entrance of death and evil in uh, in human history as well as in the universe through previous events that are described in the Bible. So this is a big subject. It's got a big upper story. It's got a lot of chapters in the lower story. And we're attempting as best we can to learn from all of these things. In the case of the Hebrew people and the Egypt story, 400 years of slavery, 430 if if you kind of include the Bible's discussion about um you know, the, Abraham being kind of like the first Israelite and the tensions between Ishmael and Isaac and the persecutions there. There's The Bible associates that storyline as well as uh, this overarching discussion about slavery. But for the Hebrew people in Egypt, particularly in Exodus, we're, we're looking at that 400 years of slavery. The United States is 246 years old, 247 in July. You can imagine all of the injustice and all of the issues that were um, built up in 400 years of history of slavery. I did my best to kind of look at that a bit in my sermon um, that was titled The Silence of the Dogs, looking at some of these issues. You can listen to that if you want more on that. Slavery, though, in the U.S. is is not just a Civil War time frame. We have to go back in our history to 1619 to Jamestown and the harbor when the first slave ship arrives. It contained a handful of captive Africans, and by the end of the Atlantic slave trade, more than two centuries later, somewhere between 8 million and 12 million Africans had arrived in the New World in chains. The practice of slavery constituted constitutes this, and, and this is kind of a you know an official kind of um, design, uh, description of slavery, I find it helpful. It's an immoral and inhumane deprivation of life, liberty, rights, cultural heritage. Uh, it deprives people of their uh, the fruits of their labor. Uh, you know, their their well, probably a lot more than that. But but th- that kind of gives just a nutshell of what we're looking at, and especially in the in the case of American history and and our relationship to slavery and and those from Africa, 
That's, that's kind of what's at the base of this reflection back. And my point in bringing that up is, you know, this conversation is, is one that has many chapters in our history as a people here in the United States. One of the things in, in preparation for these sermons that I found pretty provocative and interesting was the place of George Mason of Virginia. He was uh, part of the Constitutional Convention, and he was he was instrumental in in putting together the Declaration of of Rights, kind of con- um, Bill of Rights of Virginia. He was the one whose writings Thomas Jefferson uh, drew from in in the Declaration of of Independence and different writings that were uh, a, a part of that. He he said this about slavery, which he opposed. Uh, and he not only opposed slavery and wanted to see um, Congress uh, deal with this, but but he he had the idea or he had the perspective and of that it's not only something that the state should address, more so it's something that the slave owner should address. The weight upon bringing liberty and justice is not just from the top down of government and the federal government. It should be something that is happening at a state level or a, at a local level and, and even more profoundly from the level of the heart. And this is an issue that I hope to be able to close this podcast today with us understanding that the the place the Bible puts uh, for the um, transformation of society in whatever social ills are going on is the human heart. That's where all things originate. That's something that Jesus said, all evil comes out of the heart. And the way the Bible deals with or teaches about how God deals with transformation of, of society is transformation of the human heart heart and mind. And this is an important component of all change. Doesn't negate any uh, you know, laws or, or approaching things from a civil um, position, but it acknowledges that the true change is going to come about when men and women's hearts are changed. George Mason said this, every master is born a petty tyrant. They bring the judgment of heaven upon a country. As nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, they must be in this. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities. This idea of his, which uh, caused him to, uh, and others with him, to uh, not want to sign the, the Constitution as it was because of not having the Bill of Rights in it and the idea that that there needed to be this uh, establishment of the you know the rights of the individual and not just governments. There's some great history in there about this battle between uh, freedom and and rights and slavery and and what human being is uh, entitled those rights. Uh, but as we know that that came later. But his, his position and his idea that God will judge a nation, judge people in time, not just in eternity as, as we kind of separate often, is also underpins a lot of the national kind of discussion that came with the Civil War, which we'll see in particularly 
President Lincoln and the way his, it appears in, in my reading, his his views of some things about these things changed uh, by the time of his second inaugural address. Some facts about history that we, uh, slavery and history in, in the U.S., particularly that we need to have before us in our minds as we discuss some of this. Historians estimate that one slave perished for every one who survived capture in the African interior and made it alive to the new world, meaning as many as 12 million people perished on that journey. That's a staggering number. Slaves, we need to remember, built the U.S. Capitol, cast and hoisted the Statue of Freedom on top of its dome, and cleared the forest between the Capitol and the White House. We're also involved uh, in, in the construction of the White House. Slavery fueled the prosperity of our young nation. From 1790 to 1860 alone, the U.S. economy reaped the benefits of as much as $40 million in unpaid labor. Some estimate the current value of this unpaid labor is at $1.4 trillion. Again, those numbers are staggering. Uh, In the time period of the American Civil War, uh, which was, you know, um, 1861 to 1865, roughly 700,000 lives were lost in that war, approximately equal to the total number of American fatalities in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, the Mexican War, the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War combined. An immense loss of life that is connected to this whole subject. Now, that connection is not as, uh, it, it's, 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 it's one that isn't easily um, addressed as, as maybe it has been in the past. I think there's a lot of modern scholarship and modern, um, you know, uh, attention given to the subject of, you know, how connected to slavery the Civil War was and it, what level and in what place. This is a huge issue, one of which I'm no expert in, but is worth examining in in light of our own ability to kind of walk through the horror of that and, and where we got and and maybe in some ways as we look back, what what are we responsible for that took place during that time frame time frame? Is there is there a legitimacy for the place that we are discussing in our current culture about reparations and and the idea of are the people in our time responsible in any way for the actions that people did in their time? This is a a big and controversial subject. But um, one of the things I read was Lincoln in a letter to Horace Greeley in 1862, he said this, and and again, remember, 1861 was the beginning of the Civil War. So, right at the beginning, Lincoln says this in one of his letters, I would save the Union. I would save it the shortest way under the Constitution. The sooner the national authority can be restored, the nearer the Union will be, quote, the Union as it was, end quote. If there be those who would not save the Union, unless they could at the same time save slavery, I do not agree with them. If there be those who would not save the Union, unless they could at the same time destroy slavery, I do not agree with them. My paramount objection in this struggle is to save the Union, and is not either to save or to destroy slavery. 
If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps to save the union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help save the union. I shall do no less whenever I shall believe what I am doing hurts the cause. And I shall do more whenever I shall believe doing more will help the cause. Now, that's just a portion out of a letter, and I'm not saying there isn't any other context to that, any other thinking that Lincoln had that, that would help shed light on this kind of discussion. But one of the things that I think is pretty interesting is when you read his second inaugural address in the midst of the Civil War, you you hear quite a different kind of uh, weight to his words, one that reflects back to George Mason and the idea that God's judgment is uh, unfolding in the Civil War and that both sides are um, responsible and, and guilty for for the sins that have brought this judgment on us. Um, is that an evolution of thinking in his experience when he saw things unfold? Is the state of the Union and its its imperative kind of place at the beginning of these things did it get did it get reconsidered and did the issue of slavery and the rights of human beings was his heart changed or or broadened or expanded or or did he see in the events of the civil war things that that brought him a greater amount of wisdom and and god worked on him i i, I imagine all those things so i'm not going to speak in some kind of um authoritative manner in in this. But when you look at that quote and the ideas behind it and and kind of the motivations, and then you read his second inaugural address you and, and, and other things, you you see that there's this real wrestling with are we what are we dealing with when it comes to slavery and what is God at work and doing? A portion of his Address in 1865 says this, Fondly do we hope, fervently do we pray, that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so it must be said, quote, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That reference there that Lincoln gives to, you know, kind of the economic issues behind the Civil War is a real touchy part of this whole discussion. The idea that if we prosper off of slavery as a nation, as individuals, <coughs> excuse me, um, what does justice say to that? And, and what is justice in, in relationship to 
prospering off of these kind of events. The economics of slavery are a fascinating and troubling read if you dig deeper into our history and, and the various parties that um, are that profited off of slavery in in the in U.S. history. I found this discussion sparked. I my my delving into this this more and more was sparked out of my reading of the scripture, and particularly uh, Exodus one verses six through fourteen, where it references something in verse eleven that I think is worth reading just to kind of set up this short part of our podcast where we're dealing about this idea of the economics of slavery that Lincoln kind of highlighted there in his address. Exodus 1, 6-14 says this, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in number, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. Now, this verse 11 is the one that's applicable to kind of what I'm my, my main thoughts in this portion. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the many more, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Now, that description there is important when we look at the, the, um, content and and the discussion that Moses and God give to the Israelite people in uh, the law, particularly uh, Exodus chapter 21, where it describes some surprising um, things about slavery, what's allowed, what's not allowed, that how to treat people. There, there's a lot of discussions that will kind of uh, capture and dig into a little bit more in a, in a few moments. But when I read that part about these cities being built by slaves, obviously you can see the the connection, the correlation there. What is it? What is just when we benefit from something that was built by injustice? And what should be our relationship to those things? You know, industry and slavery is a big subject, and I read, uh, this is a quote from something I read, and I, unfortunately, I didn't can't, I didn't attribute it, so I apologize for that, but it, it's a basic summation of industry and slavery. It says this, traders, brokers, auctioneers, consigners all benefit from the buy and selling of enslaved men, women, and children, yet profits generated through the trade were not limited to those with direct ties to slave sales. Banks were heavily invested in the trade at both the local and national levels. Slave traders across the country relied on bank loans for the initial outlay of funds needed to assemble slave coffles and planters frequently financed purchases through the bank-supported mortgages. In 1831 to 1832 alone, loans extended to Franklin, Armfield, and Ballard's slaving firm constituted 5% of the total commercial credit on offer from the Second Bank of the United States. 
other industries benefited too. Insurers underwrote policies covering slave shipments by rail, river, land, sea. Food purveyors supplied salt and pork and corn and beans and other provisions to the slave drivers and moving slaves around and slave pen owners. Notaries and lawyers and other bureaucrats collected fees for each piece of paper generated by the slave transfers and slave sales. During the early stages of ready-to-wear clothing manufacturing, companies such as Brooks Brothers and S. Hopkins Jr. supplied quote-unquote plantation clothing to planters and cheap, uh, and cheaply made suits, top hats, head wraps, and dresses to auction houses eager to spruce up their human wares. Steampo- steamboat companies and ship captains, too, saw their purses swell with funds paid to transport slave cargo. Medical providers, including doctors and hospitals and private clinics, profited by bringing individuals sickened by their long journey south back to full strength so that their owners might fetch high prices at their sale. David Shaw writes, the northern states profited from slavery in many ways, from the country's inception right up to the outbreak of hostilities. Even after slavery was outlawed in the north, ships out of New England continued to carry thousands of Africans southward to the slave states. Some 156,000 slaves were brought to the United States in the period between 1801 and 1808. That's before the Civil War, obviously. Almost all of them on ships that sailed from New England ports that had recently outlawed slavery. Rhode Island slavers alone imported an average of 6,400 Africans annually into the U.S. in the years 1805 to 1806. Northern industry also benefited greatly from slave labor. The slave-based profits made in the South were matched by northern industrialists whose mills in 1850 consumed 150 million pounds of cotton a year. Slave labor provided a cheap source of raw materials. So the industry in the North, the life in the North uh, was, was, you know, its quality of life was on the back of slavery and, and in this case, uh, as it said, cotton. How much did the North profit from the labor of Southern slavery? In 1861, the mayor, uh, Ferdinand Wood, declared that New York City should secede from the United States. His reasoning was simple. Southern cotton picked by slaves was the lifeblood of New York's economy. New York merchants prospered by selling Southern planters luxury goods, while the city's ships, builders built vessels to transport northern manufactured goods south and cotton and other agricultural agricultural products north. The mayor believed New York's best interests lay in putting New York's financial interests ahead of any moral consider, consideration regarding chattel slavery. Now, as an example of what that looked like on the lives of individual people. There's a just a, a brutal kind of description of slave life uh, in New York City. It says, uh, slaves in New York had their own Negro burial ground. It lay a mile outside the city limits, and it contained between 10,000 and 20,000 bodies by the time it was closed in 1794. Further research conducted by Howard University's of 400 skeletons of these buried slaves revealed that 40% of the children were under the age of 15, and the most common cause of death was malnutrition. 
Most of the children had rickets, scurvy, anemia, or related diseases. The adult skeletons showed that many people died of unrelenting hard labor. Strain on the muscles and ligaments were so extreme that muscle attachments were commonly ripped away from the skeleton, taking chunks of bone with them, leaving the body in perpetual pain. The highest mortality rate is found among women ages 15 to 20. Investigators have concluded that some died of illnesses acquired in the holds of slave shippers or from a first exposure to the cold or the trauma of being torn from their families and shipped in chains halfway around the globe. Moreover, the research has concluded that these women were worked to death by owners who could simply go out and buy a new slave. Investments in slavery was one of the most profitable economic activities in New York's history leading up to the Civil War. Much of the financing for the slave economy flowed through New York banks. Marquee names such as J.P. Morgan Chase, New York Life, all profited greatly from slavery. Lehman Brothers, one of Wall Street's largest firms until 2008, got its start in the slave economy of Alabama. Slavery was so important to the city of New York um, that it was one of the most pro-slavery urban municipalities in the North. So that gives you just kind of this economic industry-related perspective of how much money was at work in the economy of the new world or in, and, and in the time of the Civil War, so much at stake. To move forward and dismantle this and, and pass laws and, and then end up fighting for this, you see that there were great forces at work that wanted to resist this. Those forces at work on both sides, north and south. And this is the part of change that is so lost upon our very shallow thinking and debating that's going on right now about issues. You know, it reminds me of, you know, the debate about climate. If we were to say tomorrow we're going to confiscate all vehicles, all fossil fuel is going to stop tomorrow for the sake of saving our environment, the amount of chaos and, um, social unrest that would erupt so quickly because of all the supply chains that would be disrupted by this moral decision um, would be cataclysmic to the lives of people in the U.S. It's not a process that can happen instantly. It's something that had to be moved forward in. It's, It's something that has to be done depending on your your you know your own ideas about it but but as an idea it has to be a process and and this is something that we need to be careful about when we look back great social change is this blending of of cathartic kind of events and and moments in history that spark things and and the evolution of ideas and the development of suffering and 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 the way that that evil has a way of bringing something to the surface and has to be dealt with is there's this all these processes that are involved in it but we can't forget that in those early days in the US case as kind of reflected by this discussion and look at the slaves and their building of Egypt companies profited 
When I went through my discussion or my study on all, there was a number of things that I looked at um, in retail, in universities, uh, banks and finance. I'm going through my notes here. Insurance companies, railways. All of these industries profited in major ways from slavery. Companies like mentioned earlier, Brooke Brothers, the old, oldest um, clothing manufacturer in the U.S. Now it's a conglomerate of other things. Universities like Harvard, Brown, and others, and you know that's been current news in the last ten years about you know universities coming to terms and trying to figure out how to deal with that. Banks. And finance companies, AIG, Aetna, Wells Fargo, Fleet Boston, J.P. Morgan Chase, all of these are wrestling right now in in various other ways, in various ways with litigation, class action suits, um, cultural pressure being put on to tell the full story. Uh, insurance companies like New York Life, railway companies that that um, have bought up smaller railways that had um, historical connection to moving goods and slaves and involved in the, all of these kind of debates about what do we do with a U.S. economy? Remember, this isn't very long ago, 246 years ago. What do we do with companies, you know, that earn you know millions and billions of dollars off of the you know the institution and all all the you know connections to slavery these these are very real um, matters that obviously are underlying a lot of our current um, discussions about this subject and so when I when I read that line about the slaves building these two storehouse cities um, as as simple as a connection as that may be, and and maybe in some ways, and you know, doesn't fully deal with the subject, obviously. But it sparked my thoughts about when we are looking at the matters of justice and looking at the issue of slavery. What are people entitled to? How are societies supposed to wrestle with those realities? And I think we have a lot of do um, work to have to to have been done. We we need to do a lot of work in having these kind of conversations and and not spinning out in endless dead ends on them, but really coming to terms with it. And I think there's some good work uh, that that is at the root of some of that. Obviously, if you know me, I I'm not going to align with a lot of the ultra left and progressive kind of. Uh, you know, uh, end results that they want in some of this. But I still think we need to be listening and having this conversation and debate because I think there needs to be a way forward that really honestly uh, looks like a people that are coming to terms with it and acting in response to it, not just um, pretending like it doesn't matter. When when I look at how the Bible deals with slavery and social e- evils, there's, there's a lot of hard work uh, work that needs to be done in this whole area. And, and I'm nervous that a lot of churches, at least in my experience, uh, in evangelical circles, avoid so much of this and, and just try to focus on things that they feel 
are eternal and 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 are, are not not addressed too much in the social world in in some circles. Um, but what happens is when people get exposed to higher education and in a secular environment. Or, or, or ones that are, are more socially uh, adept at talking about history, they'll realize that the, the Bible has a lot to say about slavery. And in certain hands, it can become something that uh, obviously we know from history, the issue of slavery was used by slave owners and the Bible was used in justifying it. And so we have to do a lot of work at figuring out what does the Bible say about it? Is the Bible complicit in producing cultural slavery and 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 undermining liberty of the individual is is the bible culpable in the way its laws are placed within scripture related to the subject these are big issues and i i think there should be some element of doing diligence at answering those questions and wrestling with them or or providing resources for people that do that work there's a lot of resources coming out right now that are coming to conclusions that I personally feel are are not doing the Bible justice or handling history in a way that is um, equitable and just or or factually accurate. Um, there's a lot of agendas behind this conversation, and it's a difficult one. Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through five says, "Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God." The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. That verse in the law is is at the heart of the strategy through which evil and injustice is undone or overcome. This idea that we are to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is the posture of wanting to be like God, wanting our lives to be shaped by Him, wanting His will to dominate all of our life in every sphere. The verse that follows that and the idea that follows that is to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is obviously a teaching that's foundational in Christian uh, theology or in Christian ethics and Christian life. The idea that we're to love God, and that's a vertical with everything we have kind of posture, and then we're to love each other in this horizontal um direction, again, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This idea that love is the orientation, what orients us and is our compass for determining what's right or wrong and how to live in relationship with God and with other people. This idea is profoundly disruptive to injustice. The idea that we should think about others and whether or not we would want to be treated in the way that they are treated or the, you know, that that we're looking at a situation through the eyes of, you know, would I want this to be happening to me? Would I want this to be my situation? Would I choose those conditions? This kind of motivation is is a seed that gets planted through scripture in the law. And the teaching of God to his people, that becomes the big tree of New Testament 
liberty and freedom and transformation through the Word and the Spirit. I mean, we have this growth of God's Word and truth that that leads to freedom and liberty in the story arc of Scripture. It's the kind of seed that when it's planted anywhere in time, it has profound transformational change. Uh, Matthew 13.33 has a verse where Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Again, this idea being that it just takes a little bit of this truth, eternal truth, God-inspired God-potent truth, life-shaping, soul-penetrating, mind-renewing, heart-breaking, yielding, and transforming truth. God's truth, when it is believed, when it is practiced, when it governs, when it exposes and conforms and, and molds a life, This is the ground by which justice and mercy and love and compassion grow out of. It is the um, subversive power of God at work in history. And we see this in the case of slavery. Um, We have in the New Testament a book uh, that's devoted, a letter that's devoted to this. I talked a little bit about this in my MLK Jr. podcast, but Philemon uh, has some passages that I I think when you read that chapter, it's just one chapter, you see this subversive power of love at work between a slave master and a slave. It's a fascinating story, and it's well worth digging into more and pulling apart and I'll do that at another time, but just a few thoughts on that. You know, the idea that Philemon's slave runs away, Onesimus, he runs off to Rome. You know, Rome, 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, 60 million slaves. This is an institution, folks. I mean, the slavery in Rome under the Romans is, you know, the pinnacle of, of human uh, suffering and, and a societal institution woven throughout he runs off to this wild Rome where, where lots of, uh, you know, activities going on and all kinds. And through, through the sovereign work of God, he ends up getting connected with Paul. I don't know if they got, if he got thrown in jail at some point or there was some, you know, civil issue that he did that put him in proximity to Paul who was at that time in chains under house arrest or if he was he got a I don't know what the context was but somehow God's pathway leads him to Paul who's friends with his slave owner Philemon uh, and and through Paul's ministry Onesimus becomes a Christian and his whole story comes out and Paul uh, ends up writing this letter back to Philemon, and that's the letter we have. And it's a letter of, of how to receive back or, or, or to view Onesimus uh, in light of his conversion and in light of the gospel, in light of this new standing that God had given him. And there's 
couple verses that I think is just profound. If you think about it in light of the culture at the time, if you think about it in light of the seed that is at work in undermining cultural evil and cultural structures that lead to oppression and are oppressive, he says, he, speaking of Onesimus, is no longer a slave to you. He is more than a slave. He is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. Now there is Christian a Christian worldview in a culture that thought completely different about slavery, about the worth of a slave, about the value of a slave. These ideas, if you were to translate them over into our own history with slavery and our own wrestling with racism, our own laws and words and our own government institutions and, and founding documents that that often describe people as less than a man, a certain percentage of a man. It's one thing to really call people a brother, and it's another way, another thing to act like they're your brother and take on their debts. It's another thing to call someone a brother and seek to take upon yourself whatever debts they owe. This is at the heart of Christian spirituality as as modeled and practiced by Jesus in his saving work on the cross and taking all of our debts upon himself and letting us go free. Again, there's that upper and lower story of slavery and freedom and sin that all of these social ills, you know, are shadows of in 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 their horror. Philemon is being challenged to see Onesimus as something different because of the gospel. That the structures and the culture and the jobs and the history that they had, all of these things had to yield to the new vision of humanity given to us through Christ in the gospel. Everything has to change by seeing one another and God through Scripture. That becomes the grid, the kingdom grid to all societies, no matter what is currently uh, going on. We have to have eyes that see one another as the gospel and the scriptures say we are. We have to see the image of God in one another. And this becomes the motivation and the power of change. And we see in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 20 through 24, another discussion where Paul's having with slaves and masters and the church and, and how to operate when your hearts have been changed, your relationships have been changed, things are different in the kingdom of God, but you're still in the society that is structured a way that's unjust. How do you how do you navigate that? Are you to uprise? Should there be revolt, revolution? Should you should you fight the powers? Should you burn down the streets? Should you tear down uh, this or that? What what should be the way we deal with a society that has structural injustice in it? 
and, and what's the proper response? And in this discussion, he says, each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person is responsible to God and should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. So, this is a fascinating, again, this is the seed kind of idea. It grows. Opportunity presents itself. Make the most of that opportunity. But no matter what situation you're in, realize that God can still work in and through your life, no matter what structures or systematic uh, things are in place that are preventing various things to happen, God still can, uh, God will and is doing His work to bring about change. And we are to to live in this tension of, of dealing with what we can't change and trusting God to work within it, and at the same time, making the most of opportunities that we do have power to bring about change. If we have the ability in this scripture to get free, Paul says to do it. If we have the ability to, uh, or we come to a point, he's saying, where you are going to sell yourself into slavery, and this is, again, in, in looking at scripture, that most most slavery that the Bible talks about is when someone themselves chooses to indenture themselves in servitude to someone for economic means or or for life and safety or or whatever. The, the, the majority of the ink that is given is about a free choice to enter into a relationship that um, you submit to. Not all. The Bible deals with some other stuff, but and we'll 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 look at that probably in this podcast. Maybe I'm at 53 minutes already. Oh goodness! But one of the things I want you to see from that discussion in Corinthians is that there's these multiple things that are at work here. Pursue freedom if you got the ability. Don't put yourself in a place where you become the slave of someone. These principles are powerful when they're understood at the kind of subversive and and the kind of change and the kind of protections that are in them. David Gusick, a Bible commentator, says, As the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. No matter what your station, married, single, divorced, widowed, remarried, whatever, slave, free, God can work in your life. Instead of thinking that you can or will walk for the Lord when your situation changes, walk for the Lord in the place you are right now. That's a powerful thought. Um, Bible commentator Bruce says, What the letter to Philemon does is bring the institution into an atmosphere where it could only wilt and die, where the master and slave were united in affection as brothers in Christ. Formal emancipation would be but a matter of expediency, the legal confirmation of their new relationship. 
N.T. Wright says, Paul never called for an overthrow of the system of slavery yet, slavery, yet the principles in the letter to Philemon destroy slavery. The greatest societal change comes when people are changed one heart at a time. In our society, racism and our low regard for the unborn cannot be eliminated by laws. A change of heart must occur. Now, that's that's advocating this this overarching principle that is applicable all the time, but I I would submit that it also goes in tandem with how Paul said, if you can get free, if you can work to end, if you can exact uh, you know bring about civil change and laws that you know help support what is right, that, that's another part of the process. I, I don't think that this undermines our civil responsibility to work for justice on all levels. But I think what it does is it informs us that God's work is internal and that it works from the inside out. And that work can be accomplished anywhere, anytime, any culture, any situation, any structure, any, any, uh, among any evil place, uh, God, love is more powerful than evil, more powerful than hate. And this undergirds all Christian work to fight injustice. It doesn't eliminate our, our uh, action. It informs our action. Exodus chapter 21 deals with a bunch of laws, and I'm going to close out this podcast with some of these laws and closing thoughts. Exodus 21 says this. Now listen to this, listen to these laws and put them up against the law, the the experiences of slavery in this in the America, uh, the American story or or uh, the Egyptian or other cultural um, examples of slavery, which I gave examples on Sunday. Exodus 21.2 says that if you buy a Hebrew slave, he may serve no more than six years, set him free in the seventh year, and he will owe you nothing for his freedom. 21.12 says anyone who assaults or kills another person must be put to death. Think of that in light of slavery's history. 21.16 of Exodus says kidnappers must be put to death, whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already sold them as slaves. 21 verse 26 through 27 says, if a man hits his male or female slave in the eye and the eye is blinded, he must let the slave go free to compensate compensate for his eye. If a man knocks out the tooth of his male or female slave, he must let the slave go free to compensate for the tooth. And last of all, Exodus 21, 10 through 11 says, If a man who has married a slave wife takes another wife for himself, he must not neglect the rights of the first wife to food, clothing, sexual intimacy. If he fails in any of these three obligations, she may leave as a free woman without making any payment. That's just a very light uh, look into some of the verses uh, in Exodus that God was giving to the people who had been slaves as he works within a world that has slavery and how to bring about change in that world, how ethically and morally and righteously his people are called to live in relationship to one another and their surrounding nations. 
there's a lot more biblical text given to the subject. But I want to just give that highlight, those highlights of some of those verses that show we're dealing with a different reality of, of God at work in humans and how to shape their hearts and minds about how they view one another, how they treat one another. Whether they acted on that or choose to act on that, with whatever situation arises, if they go to war and there's uh, people that they were fighting to kill and they decide not to kill them, but to make them slaves, the Bible addresses that situation. If they're slaves and they're born in the house, servants that were born in the house, and whose are they? Uh, all of these issues are, are dug into in the law. All of these issues, or so many of them, are handled unbiblically in history, our own country included. The horrific stories of the experiences of slaves, as I've referenced in other podcasts and sermons, particularly the story of Frederick Douglass in, in his autobiography and the stories of his own experience of slavery, undergird what it uh, and, and highlight this horrific reality that we're dealing with. Even among those who called themselves Christians, those who were slaves and masters in churches in the South, all of these issues uh, at work in profoundly and difficult ways that we as a society look back on, we as a society are debating and arguing and, and fighting for justice right now in our own culture, and of course, as we look out over the sufferings of the whole world in relationship to modern-day slavery, the sex trade, human trafficking, all of the horrors of these realities, we as Christians— we as humans need to have a biblical and humane and ethical and righteous understanding of how to be the people of God in this world we're in. And I feel that the person of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the work that Jesus brought to bring liberty and healing and restoration and wholeness, the, the work of bringing dignity to all people in his culture, that he encountered. The reason we read the Gospels and are so profoundly moved by the person, the work, and the words, and the witness of Jesus is because it was revolutionary. It goes, it goes counter to what's expected. It turns the world upside down. It set in motion things that we know have spread across the world and like a wildfire. The love of Christ as displayed in his mercy and his care and his compassion and his miracles to undo sin and sickness and disease and demonic oppression, to bring people together in, in the work of the kingdom that culturally would never be together, the way he brought mountains down and valleys up, how he liberated and loosed and made new. All of these things are, are at the heart of why the, the person of Christ uh, God in Christ is so profoundly uh, impactful when we encounter Him and His words and His works. That's why this world is in desperate need of authentic, real, uh, committed, and courageous Christians that embrace the Gospels, that, uh, that embrace the, the teachings of Christ and the works of Christ for the least of these, for the margins, for those that are in desperate need of God's um, favor 
in his jubilee, those who are oppressed, those who are prisoners, those who are in darkness, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are sick, those who are in need, those who are orphaned, those who are, have lost their, their, their loved ones and are widowed or widowers. These, all of this is, out, is the foundational um, Christian vision, biblical vision that, that informs and empowers our work for justice and love and mercy and compassion in the world. When we understand the overarching biblical narrative of freedom and justice and fighting injustice and God's defeat of the powers and his work in the people of God through time and as as fully revealed in, in the person and work of Christ, when all of this informs our hearts and minds, we see that we are called to exercise the same work and words in the world, that as Christians, we are commanded to go into all the world, every place of this planet where God's liberation needs to come, God's mercy needs to come, God's love and compassion and truth and light and holiness needs to invade. We are compelled and propelled by the Holy Spirit to be instruments of righteousness, instruments of love and justice in this world. And we are, are all of our acts and all of our works are emerge out of this foundation and understanding. And this seed is like a tree that grows. You know, this seed is like a little piece of leaven in dough. It is a subversive call. And it takes courage, and it takes boldness, and it takes a commitment to Christ to walk out. And I pray that we, as, as people who are listening to this, would be inspired and challenged and humbled and willing to hear other people's stories in this day and age and to link up heart to heart, head to head, hand to hand, to work for justice as Christ worked for justice in the earth. And God's Spirit is at work in bringing justice to this world until the day He returns and sets everything up and right. God hasten the day, I pray. Thanks for listening. God bless you. 